The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 14 of The Ascent of Board Games. We're back. I'm Brian, the guy who talks a lot. I'm Jason, the guy who talks far less. I'm Joe. I got nothing. I'm Mike. I'm Frank. So we're back, ready to talk about some more stuff. Hope you caught our last episode when we got to talk to the amazing Rob Davio about legacy games and all his stuff. And if you haven't listened to that, you should go listen to that because it's good. I may be slightly biased, but whatever. (laughs) I mean, yeah, just to kind of pat ourselves on our own back. Brian, that episode sounded amazing. Like, great job cutting that interview in. There was a lot of moving parts in that one. So, yeah, I'm glad that seemed to turn out pretty well. So, yeah, definitely go listen to that episode and just skip this one. Oh, wait. (laughs) Hey, no. (laughs) Not helping. No, I think the only lesson to learn here is the more stress we give Brian editing the episode together, the better it is. You see these bags under my eyes? (laughs) It's like a crucible, apparently. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The podcast feeds on my pain. I'm going to lead with this up front. We've talked about it before, but if you're enjoying what we're doing and you have a few minutes, if you want to go and leave an iTunes review, that would be great because that really does help us find more listeners, which really helps us do this more. The other thing I wanted to mention is that there is a new D&D live play podcast called Feats and Fables featuring two of our cast here that you should check out if you are interested in listening to people play D&D in funny and entertaining ways. I like it. I'm in it, so that helps, but it's a lot of fun. So this month, we have come to talk about pushing your luck. Is that push your luck or press your luck? That depends on who you ask. I have seen it both (laughs) ways. So basically, this is a pretty old mechanic in which you can sort of keep doing things on your turn, and each time you repeat a certain action or do a certain thing, you have a chance that it will get better and better, or a chance that everything will fall apart and fail horribly. Jason, as usual, has done a ton of research into finding where all this started in sort of well-known games, and then Frank, being Frank, discovered some things that (laughs) were even older than that. But we're going to start with Jason talking about one that I think everybody here knows about. Real quick, I just want to paint a picture. We sat down to record, and Frank has with him a beautifully designed coffee table book about the art of contest in Asian games that is fascinating. Oh, yeah. This showed up yesterday. Because I have a large game book library as well, Eric Arneson has actually been sending me his roughly equivalent sized collection he's moving and he's old <laughs> so i've got a ton of new books i'm starting to wade through to get history and i didn't know much about asian games and this one i'm just starting into it's going to be a long long read the best known western example is also one of the oldest yeah and it's one i imagine most people have heard about and either call it 21 or blackjack you're essentially pressing your luck trying to get to a score of 21 that's the ultimate goal there there were some things I found where it was talking about the, this potentially was done by the Romans with some wooden blocks, but there's no actual evidence of it. Everybody wants to credit the Romans for everything. Yeah, good point. Which means they probably stole it from the Greeks, right? <laughs> but the earliest I found <laughs> before Frank showed up was in the 1600s. There's a reference to it in a book by Miguel de Cervantes, the guy who did Don Quixote. It's a book about some gambling cheaters, and they mention a game called 21. It's just called 21 in Spanish. And then the game was popularized in the 1700s with the French, um, also called 21, but in French. Not the most imaginative series of names here. It hasn't really changed much since these early incarnations. 
you are dealt two cards. You're trying to exceed what the dealer is getting from his two cards without exceeding 21 points. If you hit 21, that's like an automatic win. That's about as simple as it gets, right? Aces are 1s or 11s in some versions of it, and face cards are 10s. Vegas, of course, as is their want, when this started taking off, started adding lots of additional layers of complexity and side bets and being able to split one hand into two hands if you had the same two cards and basically more ways to try and get people's money. I never knew why it was called blackjack. Apparently in 1931, blackjack was not well regarded in the U.S., People were aware of it, but the payouts on it were not compelling enough to draw a lot of gamblers. Mm. And so in 1931, Nevada casinos were like, we need to get more people playing this game. We want to make more money because we're casinos. That's what we do. And so they came up with this interesting way of compelling people to play it. Essentially, if while playing 21, you got a 21 composed of a black jack, so either a jack of spades, jack of clubs, and the ace of spades, it would pay out at 10 to 1. And that's where Blackjack came from. That's where it became a popular name for this. I'm not sure about this, but the 52-card deck has been standardized, like, forever, Pretty right? long time uh, in Europe. Several hundred years, anyway. What we call the modern playing cards, at least in the European sense, sort of started out with the Tarot Minor Arcana, right. which is actually 14 cards each in four suits. French and Spanish decks have different numbers of cards traditionally, mm-hmm. but the English 52-card decks, pretty old, probably 1700s. That's fascinating just because that would mean that uh, those early editions of 21 would have been played with a different set of cards. A different set of cards, which means you've got different odds, probabilities. Mm-hmm. In a lot of early card games, you would have a deck that was specifically built for that game. You'll still see that today in some things like Euchre. Yeah, Euchre's got the crazy deck. From these variants, the one I found is called Naksh, N-A-Q-S-H. It's traditionally played more modern with Indian-suited round playing cards with an 88-card deck. Its origins are a little harder. Playing cards came from originally probably Egypt or Persia, and they found going back to, you know, 1200s in those two places. And it looks like Naqsh was Persian origin, mid-1500s. It was a game to 17, played with probably a 72-card deck with eight suits. A lot of the Persian decks have eight suits. They have some weird versions of deck with like 11 or 12 suits. Blackjack is known today as one of the few gambling games that you can, in theory, more or less negate the house's advantage if you play smart and count cards, which casinos don't like for some reason because you're getting rid of the house advantage. Not using cards, but switching to dice, which you'll see is a reoccurring motif in these press your luck games. It's a game called Pig. I didn't actually find anything that explained why it was called that. But it's about as simple as it gets. You're trying to get to 100 points as quickly as possible. Whoever hits that first wins the game. On your turn, you roll a die. If you don't roll a one, you can choose to stop rolling and take whatever that die value was, and that's how many points you score on your turn. Or you can keep rolling, and you keep doing that until you either hold or you hit one and you bust and you get no points. There you go. There's your game. (laughs) That sort of defines it there, (laughs) I guess. It's like the very definition of a press your luck game. There there weren't a lot of entertainment options in the (laughs) mid-40s, so... uh, and this is a game that has been periodically re-released and redone and slightly fancified up a lot of times over recent years. If you look on Board Game Geek, there's actually quite a lot of iterations of this. I'm not sure why. According to Wikipedia... 
pig is likely called pig because it was based on a game that is central asian in origin called shanghai shanghai had runes in essence and when you rolled those runes they would be called like the position of the camel position the horse position sheep position goat position so it was theorized that like when that transferred to europe right they ended up just calling it pig so jason you did all your research and you never looked at wikipedia well i try and avoid looking at wikipedia Uh, for my research to be perfectly frank (laughs) like it's good for things specifically like this right this is all theory though so well it's not in frank's book so it can't be true (laughs) nope totally not there much like everything on wikipedia (laughs) theoretical i did forget to mention it It was designed quote unquote by john scarn john scarney of scarney on card tricks fame and scarney on cards and yeah he was a a very well-known both card magician and card game expert yeah i've got a bunch of his books Next, we have a game that was actually released in 1975. One of the few games I know of that is actually associated with the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Which, frankly, explains a lot about this game. The term term I found was like, it's based in the Grateful Dead universe. Like, what does that mean? It means there's dancing bears and smiling (laughs) suns everywhere. Lots of drugs. This is a game called Cosmic Wimp Out, released by Coplo Games, designed by the Boston Logical Society uh, and credited to W.W. Swilling. This is a game using five custom dice, excuse me, cubes. Yep. With a variety of inscrutable symbols on them, there's stars and lightning bolts and swirls and numbers. And I remember this game being played a lot in college. I watched a lot of people play it. I never understood what they were doing. What they were doing was, was turning it into high. a drinking game. <laughs> well, yes. Or turning it into a drinking game or something. Yeah. yeah, the dice came in a little bag, which I seem to remember a lot of people were carrying various medicinal substances in. Basically, it is structurally, when you get past the bizarre symbology and naming, a relatively simple game. You basically roll the dice, you total up your score. If you get a number like a five or ten, you get that many points. If you get three of a kind of a number or pairs in a sun, you get ten times the number. Everything has its own terminology. Everything has its own terminology. I suspect it may have been designed as a game that has ridiculously complex rules so that the more inebriated you get, the harder it is to follow and and it's easier for people to point out the things that you're doing wrong. Basically, you're rolling a bunch of dice and re-rolling as you see fit and trying to get to a certain number of points. If you score no points on any of the dice, you have wimped out. It's very swingy and almost entirely luck-based. And I think you need to be in a certain sort of state of mind to enjoy this game. I think we still got our copy, so... I mean, sure, and I'm not judging. (laughs) Yeah. Or saying anything legally actionable. But um, (laughs) the dice were very pretty. Yeah. Yeah, the artwork on the dice is is pretty gorgeous. And the little scoring tracker, too. A lot of the ones that I saw were pretty elaborate. Is this the first time that we see the you may not want to, but you must mechanic in a press your luck? Where if all five dice score points, you have that to roll them? Yeah. I believe so. I think we'll see that a couple more times as we go. We're like, you may get into a situation in which you, you I would really like want- to stop now. <laughs> but and I can't. denied. Yeah, totally. I'm not sure how this fits in the whole family tree. Maybe there are designers of some of these later games who were playing this at the time. It feels to me kind of like a little bit of an offshoot evolutionarily. It feels almost like a traditional kind of dice game with a whole bunch of rules tacked on. Can't Stop by Sid Saxon was released in 1980 by Parker Brothers and is an absolutely amazing push-your-luck game, press-your-luck, whatever. 
basically you have a set of numbers on the top of the board, 2 to 12, and a bunch of spaces with a standard bell curve for how frequently they come up. So like only three spaces on the 2 and 12 and a whole bunch of spaces on the 6, 7, 8. You have three pawns. You roll four dice and you take sets of the dice out to basically move up the three pawns. You only get those three pawns. If you ever roll something that can't progress or place one of your pawns, then you're a bust and you just take everything back. At any point, you can decide to stop and place little permanent markers to mark your location. And your object is to get three dudes to the top. However, the tricky part of the game is that whenever any of the markers make it to the top, no one can use that number anymore. <laughs> so gradually your choices become limited and the probabilities of playing that are really complex because it's like, oh crap, I don't have that. At the beginning, you can almost run a six, seven, and eight and just keep rolling until something makes it to the top. And after the six goes out, well, <laughs> you don't know. Now it becomes complicated. Some but people yeah. really like this game because there are a lot of different versions, like image-wise of this game, right? Like oh, some, totally. really, some really impressive custom boards on BGG. Yeah. yeah, what's weird, it went mass market and then mm. gradually came out from, you know, Frangios, a lot of other companies. So I think what we need is we need just a smidge more theme. Just, Do you? Just like a little bit, just like a touch a theme maybe. So let's talk about Dungeon Quest. It was released in 1985, published by Drakenhort. It was published by Schmidt Spiel as Dragonhort. Sorry, it wasn't super clear. Designed by Jacob Bonds and Dan Glemon. Everyone's more familiar with the uh, Games Workshop 1987 version. Yeah, it's a lovely game of going into the dungeon where literally everything is going to try and kill you and has a reasonably good shot at succeeding. Say, it seems like it's very effective. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In theory, you're trying to get through all this dungeon, get to the middle where the treasure hoard is, and then get out. I don't think anyone ever does that. I don't, I don't <laughs> oh, think yeah, it, people do. It's a very luck-driven game. Basically, you're revealing the dungeon with tiles as you go and having hideous traps and horrible monsters. You're just going down there and trying to be the last one that hasn't been murdered. It has a very Clank kind of feel. It feels like Clank is like an obvious progenitor mm -hmm. of this game. Joe means ancestor, not progenitor. I think my favorite part of this, I haven't actually physically played this, but I was watching a number of gameplay videos. There's a part where you go into the catacombs, where you go underneath the, yeah. the board, and you have to roll to see how much you diverge from your path. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? So like this guy's just bumbling around. Catacombs was a death sentence. Oh, yeah. we, we tended to avoid that expansion. <laughs> yeah. And they just recently re-released this. Oh, there's not like that three long ago. Fantasy Flight did a couple iterations yeah. on it. The game has some clever things going there. There's really two press your luck things going. First of all, there's the dragon. When two people are in the dragon's chamber, and in the dragon's chamber, you can get as much gold as you want. Every time you pull, there's a tile set you pull from, and it might wake the dragon. In which case, it wakes the dragon. Everyone just gets killed or kicked out of the chamber, and you get nothing. But also there's a, a wrapper of pressure luck in that you have 26 turns to get in and get out with whatever you can, even if you don't make it to the Dragon's Lair. In theory, you could win by just going a couple tiles in, going, ha, I got 10 gold. Screw it, I'm leaving. I bet you're all going to die. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and that's something we'll kind of see as we move on through here, the idea of that sometimes if you're expecting everyone else to do badly, it is a much better bet to just take a small victory and get out with it alive. In fact... We did have one game 
where someone hit the bottomless pit on the very first move and died. Yeah, no, that is that is totally a thing that happened. And that's one of the reasons I'm not as big a fan of this game is that it is entirely possible that you will get one turn and be dead and then have to just sit and do something else while the rest of the players finish the game. And that's actually one of the reasons I like it. In the original version, in the original version combat was short and it was like a 45 minute game. Fantasy Flight version kind of bumped that with a longer, more elaborate combat system. Pushed that to maybe an hour and a half and no. Just overstays its welcome at that point. You see press your luck in a lot of kids' games. The earliest we can find would be Pop Your Top, a glorious Milton Bradley, uncredited, probably Marvin Glass was involved. Basically, in Pop Your Top, you move spaces. First to the finish line wins. You've seen that kind of game. There are some safe spaces. But you have this big mechanical bird with feet. Each turn, you kind of wind it up, and that creates a random click. Every time you move, you click down on the bird, which causes its eyes to pop out and bulge. At some point when you're doing this click, the wig will fly off always directly into somebody's face. Sure. (laughs) Because that's a thing. And it's like got a dart gun kind of thing. So, I mean, it goes seven or eight feet or into an eye socket or something. (laughs) Frank, you call this a wig, but looking at these pictures, like that is clearly a human brain. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it looks like his brain's blown out of his head. (laughs) It's fluffy and like got feathers and stuff. Human fluffy brain. Yeah, okay, human fluffy brain. And of course, you can go as many spaces as you want, you announce before you go, and uh, if you pop your top, Y-E-R, then you don't get to move at all. That's the game. <laughs> I can only imagine the number of eyeballs this game has poked out. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. So, uh, maybe not the most sophisticated game, but gosh, that sounds like it'd be a hoot. But it also is a mechanical implementation of that, right? because it has that weird dial thing. And there's a lot of those in children's games, too. Yeah, where the, the, the alligator sort of... dentist one? Whatever. Yeah, one that alligator literally dentist. literally ruin your fingers. <laughs> What was the one you had with Dracula where he you'd stick your finger? I want to bite your finger. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Quite literally. Again, same thing. You can go as many spaces as you want as long as your finger doesn't get bitten. It's actually got markers. Then you have to remove the tips on the markers. And yes, it'll leave little red marks on your finger when you bite. Our next game was originally released as Diamant, which is, Brian, this is how you originally introduced me to the game. Mm-hmm. Reprinted as Ink and Gold, came out in 2005, produced by Schmitzbiel, and was designed by Bruno Fiduti and Eleanor Moon. I think this was probably the first Press Your Luck game I ever played. You are explorers, adventurers... Indiana Jones types. Indiana Jones, who are diving into a cave or a ruin looking for fabulous treasures, only to be thwarted by your own avarice. You are going to run into several different types of obstacles, and you are equipped to handle the first of that obstacle, but not the second. So if you run into a snake the first time, your tote's fine. The second time, though... The snake's going to bite and kill you, making you drop all the coins that you've collected along the way. Each time you're about to reveal the next section of cave to explore, everyone has the option to decide simultaneously, are they staying in or are they backing out? And either it will reveal some amount of treasure, which is then split evenly among everybody who is staying involved. With the remainder staying with on the With the remainder tile. sitting on that tile. Or it reveals a hazard. And like Mike said, the first hazard of each kind is fine. If it's the second hazard of the same kind, everybody's in there, loses everything they're carrying, and that cave is done. So basically, if you stay when the rest of the players have chickened out, you know, if there's only one person and you get a bunch of gems, you can get an enormous payoff. 
but you also can die horribly. The only way to score points is to leave before things get bad. And like when you retreat, you pick up all the gems you're passing by, equally swept by the number of players who are retreating. If one person retreats and there are like 10 gems on the way out, they get, get all, all of them, which can be potentially a really big payout, but like everyone will obviously notice that. If you have three people go back, 10 gems, well, each person gets one, the rest stay. Yeah, this kind of one's thing. really interesting as far as the layers of calculations that are going on, because there's how many players are remaining, how many gems are behind you. So this is, for me, the first one that I think really adds some serious layers of thought into those decisions. It was re-released a few years later as Ink and Gold, which is, I think, identical. I think there might have been one minor rule There change. might have been some tile changes, but yeah, it's basically the same. Although calculatable, if you're paying attention, the amount of gems that each person has collected over the course of the game is not readily apparent. And it's another one where if everybody backs out and you get a big score in that first cave, everybody else for the rest of the game just has to keep pressing their luck that much farther in hopes of catching up with you. And on the other hand, you can be like, eh, I've seen a couple rooms, I'm good. I got a couple gems, I'm still ahead, it's mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for a game of this type to put in your collection, I think this is a very solid choice. It's easy enough for non-gamers to pick up. It supports up to eight, so it's good for a big group. Yeah, just a, just a fun game. It's light, maybe takes half an hour to play through the whole thing. Yeah. Now, if you want to get theming, I mean, going in and exploring caves and dealing with snakes and cave-ins and curse and that kind of thing is good. But really, the classic is going into the dungeon where you're risking your lives. And a very interesting iteration of this is a game that Frank introduced me to a few years back. He showed me the original Japanese version, which was called Dungeon of Mandom. Much better name. Yeah, oh, yeah you're, totally. you're not so wrong. Good. You're not wrong. So good. Um, the English language version is called Welcome to the Dungeon. You can hear Axel's voice already. <laughs> Yeah, it was released in 2013 by I Was Game. The English version, Welcome to the Dungeon, was by Aiello, designed by Masato Usugi. The theme behind it, the story behind it, is that there is this little village with a dungeon nearby, and in order to become a man, you must go into the dungeon and come back and survive. But you only go into the dungeon one at a time. So what happens is, at the start of the game, you have a certain amount of gear to go in the dungeon. You got your sword and your shield and your helmet and your magic spells and whatever you are. All the stuff you need. Brian, here's the problem, though, is one does not just simply walk into a dungeon. You're right. First, there is the whole setup phase. There's a wide variety of monsters in the dungeon that do a varying amount of damage to you if they hit you. And most of them are vulnerable to some things. Like, I think there is a holy sword that will instantly kill anything which has the undead keyword. Yeah. There is the shield, which will protect you from the dragon, I think. Some things will protect you from so, many, so much item, damage. Yeah. Each item has a certain value or number of things it will kill or protect you from. Much like in a Japanese role-playing game. For instance, There yes. are weaknesses for every enemy. Before anyone goes to the dungeon, you're just sort of going around the table, and each turn you are either passing, I'm out, this dungeon is too dangerous, I'm not going to go, or you're drawing a card from the monster deck. And you look at that card secretly, and you decide, I am going to either keep this card and get rid of one of the pieces of equipment, or you take that monster and you put it in the dungeon, and then play passes to the player on your left. So as it goes on, you're getting more and more stuff in the dungeon, and each person has a little bit of knowledge of what monsters are there and what monsters definitely aren't there, and you're gradually getting rid of the equipment. So at some point, 
all but one player are going to decide this is too dangerous, I'm not going in, I don't think I have enough equipment left to survive this, and the last player has to go into the dungeon. And basically they flip over those face-down monster cars one at a time. If they have the right equipment, they kill it. If not, they take X amount of damage, and if they get through the monster deck without running out of hit points, they win. You have to make it through twice. Right, yeah, yeah, well they win that round. Important safety tip, you don't actually have to kill the monsters in the dungeon. You have to survive it. You have to survive it. The American version has multiple different character classes. You can be a warrior, wizard, rogue, all the standard archetypes. I think there's even an expansion that has even more. Welcome back to the dungeon. It's a really neat, not just press your luck, but also goading your neighbors and doing something hilariously risky. Oh, there's a delightful, like, screw you aspect where it's like, oh, this is an awful monster. Into the dungeon you go. (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) But that could come back to bite you in the ass later when everybody else is like, uh, nope, I'm good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm fighting the dragon. Why did you get rid of the dragon, Lance? I'm going to need that. Fast playing little game, a lot of fun just picking on your neighbors. Welcome to the dungeon, the American version. Also added a graphical element that I think really elevates it over the original Japanese, which is eh. I like the original Japanese. You do? Simple, minimal. The artwork on the Welcome to the Dungeon is really nice, though. It is that perfect amount of, like, cartoon to how silly the game is that I think really just does it for me. Deep Sea Adventure, released in 2014, published by Oink Games, and designed by Yun Sasaki, who I think is the founder and core owner of Oink Games, and uh, Goro Sasaki. So that's a really simple press-your-luck game. You have a submarine, and you have a whole bunch of people going down to all these tiles below the submarine that are all treasure and glorious and happy, and you're going to get treasure and go back. And, of course, you have one air tank because you're idiots. <laughs> that is that is a common misconception with deep-sea diving. You'd think you all have your own air tank. Oh, no. No, no you, know, you, you just have a big hose one. connected to the submarine. <laughs> But anyway, in the game, you basically go down as deep as you can. You can choose to pick up treasure on the way down because there's big piles of lovely little treasure. Eventually, you can turn around and go back up and you can pick up or drop treasure on the way back. Anything you make it back to the submarine, you get to keep and their points. Of course, better treasure deeper. Also, treasure slows you down. You're rolling a die that is like one to three. Minus one on each die for every treasure you have. Right, and the more treasure you're carrying, the more oxygen you use up. Oh, yeah. So, especially with a large player count, honestly, the first time everyone plays this game, everyone everyone dies. dies. Yep. Because they're like, surely I can get back to the submarine in time. And just as people are picking stuff up, they're moving slower and slower. The oxygen is disappearing faster and faster. No one makes it back. And then the second round, people like go out one space, grab the first cheap, lousy piece of treasure they can find and run back to the submarine. Yeah. When someone drowns, all the treasure they're carrying falls to the bottom of the ocean in big piles, which only count as one piece of treasure. And also all the things that people pick up and use in each round are taken out. So the distance to the bottom gets shorter and shorter. So those big piles of stuff at the bottom get really tempting late in the game. I think I like Deep Sea Adventure a lot better than Diamant, which it resembles. It is slower with more players because everyone gets their own turn. But because it progresses and further rounds get more points, I think it's more exciting. It gets rid of that problem you mentioned with Diamant where, oh yeah, if I'm good on the first one, I'm probably able to kind of coast back and everything. No, you can't do that in Deep Sea Adventure because there's giant piles of treasure. Yeah, there is more treasure available in the later rounds. There are much higher stakes by round three than in round one. I tend to play this with a large group just because it's an easy quick game. I feel like with a small group, like three or four players, 
that could get really tactical and interesting. Now, it is. We did miss one very important rule is that you skip over the spaces oh, yeah. that are yes. occupied by other people. Vastly so, important. And very often, you do not want to do that. <laughs> now I am very far away from the submarine. Everyone turns around and goes back and you're like, <laughs> yes, exactly. I can see the surface. Like all the Oink games, it has this great minimalist art design. It's really well put together. The little Submariner meeples are great. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. I think of this as their quintessential game. Like, this is the one that yeah, It's certainly the with. first one of theirs I played and the first one of theirs I bought. Yeah, and you can just nip into, like, Barnes & Noble, and they have this gorgeous shelf display. Coming out of the undersea trenches, we're moving into the trenches of World War One with the grizzled uh, releasing. Nice transition. Thank you. I was pretty proud of that one. <laughs> um, 2015. It's even better when you call it out, yeah. so... Yeah. It was originally published by Sweet Games. For North Americans, it's most likely you got it from the Simon or Kaman or whatever they're calling themselves re-release. Designed by Fabian Rufaud and Juan Rodriguez, it's a cooperative card game where you are playing a squad of people in World War I, going out on missions and trying to complete enough missions and survive till the end of the war with the armistice. The art in it is worth calling out. It was done by French cartoonist Pinu. His real name's Bernard Verloc. It's excellent evocative art. It really makes you kind of feel the time period really well. And basically, when you're going out on a mission, you have a mission leader. They will decide how long of a mission they're going to go on. And the way that they're doing that is they will select a number of cards to give their compatriots. So I'm going to go on a four-card mission, right? So everyone gets four cards. And we go around the group, starting with the mission leader, putting out a card, and that card will either have a hazard on it or a weather condition on it. So that hazard could be like mortar shells, it could be whistles, it could be a gas attack. And the weather's like rain, night, snow, things like that. You keep doing that until you get to a point where you're about to have three of the same hazard or three of the same weather conditions. If you ever play a card that makes that a third card of that type go out, the mission has failed, all the cards get taken back and get put back into the card pile that you're drawing from that you're trying to deplete to win the game. And each card that you draw is potentially multiple. It could be Up night th- and gas yeah, attack yeah, yeah. or yes. snow and mortars or whatever. Of course, there is one card in the game that just has one of everything on yes. it. Uh, and you can't communicate what's in your hand. You have to just put something out and then you just hear people around the group go, ah. <laughs> <It's like, laughs> all they have is things that will exceed that three value that you're trying to avoid. It's like a set collection game. Where collecting <laughs> the set will cause you to lose. Yes. Yes. That's a much better way to put it, Mike. Uh, Thanks. But of course, if you can't play a card, if playing a card will cause you to lose, you can always just bow out. Yeah, withdraw, which means you aren't participating in any of the later rounds, but you are keeping whatever cards are still in your hand, which is not good. Doesn't get any better. (laughs) And for extra fun, there's also cards that are just bad things happen to you. Like, hey, I'm playing a card, and now for the rest of this game, until I clear this card, I can't withdraw until everyone else is withdrawn. That's a real problem. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't one of them like, you can't talk? Oh, yes. You're now mute. Yep, which is really fun (laughs) to give to somebody. But those are an alternate lose condition, right? They are. They all have lightning bolts on them. And if you have four lightning bolts, your character dies in the end of the game. But at the end of a mission, regardless of whether you win or lose, you have these little support tokens that you can give. Everyone selects a support token. You have a combination of left and right facing support tokens. You select them secretly. Everyone reveals them. And whoever gets the most support pointed at them can either discard those bad conditions or they can recharge their lucky charm, which is a way of getting rid of cards that have already been played. The problem is after you've given your support, that token goes to that person. So these tokens are shuffling around the board the entire course of the game. And you're like, well, I really like to support Brian, who's on my right. I've got four lefts. 
that's a problem. <laughs> yes, that's not going to happen. It's a big problem for me. Yes. Yeah, and it's an interesting way of making sure that hopefully the same person isn't getting supported every round. Like, there's a little bit of imperfect play that it goes into there, just so you can't completely math out how you're going to play. Yeah. When you win, you also get a speech. Yes, 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 that's right. <laughs> and so you get to be like, hey, be not afraid of snow and then anyone who has a snow card can discard it and so invariably what happens is being not afraid of snow and you discard a snow card and everyone else groans at you <laughs> yes. because you picked the exact <laughs> who's afraid thing. of snow honestly <laughs> yeah the best part is when someone is that mute condition and they have a speech and they can't give it they can't give it that is hilarious <laughs> they're just wildly gesticulating about the snow but no one understands them <laughs> It is a wonderful game. It's I a absolutely great love it. Game. The art is amazing. Also, an impossible game. Like <laughs> it's I think really I, hard. It's hard. Yeah. One time. Have you played it with the advanced rules with the no, traps? No, God no. Why would I do that? <laughs> have you played the Armistice Editions campaign? I own it. I have not played through it. I've heard it's good. It comes with these amazing pre-painted minis, which that... have no use oh. in the game, but they're really they cool are looking. gorgeous. They are gorgeous. Yeah, they indicate if you've withdrawn or not. <laughs> sure. Yeah. They had an expansion called uh, At Your Orders that adds a couple other small game mechanisms, but I think all of that's combined in the Armistice, Armistice edition. edition. Yeah, yeah, but it's really clever, right? Because it's one of the few games that is both pressure luck and also purely cooperative, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I didn't think about that. This game gets a lot of play. My brother-in-law is obsessed with this game. He'll play it till like 3 a.m. We have our annual gathering. Curtis does love that game. Yes. So our next game is all about being a doctor, kind of. Ish. Quacks of Quellenberg was a 2018 North Star game release designed by Wolfgang Wersch. Originally by Schmitz Field, because that's a thing. They've got a type. Yeah. And this game, each of the players is a quack, which I'm, I'm going to go ahead and point out. I did not get that theming at all in this game. I swear to God, I thought we were witches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. um, and we are brewing potions because we're witches. And into the cauldron, we are putting different ingredients that have different effects on the game. And the way that we add ingredients to our cauldron is by drawing them out of a bag. Every player's bag starts with the same mixture of ingredients. And after each round, you might get to add ingredients. One at a time, you pick an ingredient out and you add it to the next space on your board, moving it a number of spaces forward equal to that token's value. I think most of them are valued one through three. There might be a one, two, four. and four. One, two, and four. And then however far out from the center that you go, that is going to be the points you score or the gold that you can use to buy new ingredients or both. There is a busting mechanic. If you bust, you only get the one or the ingredients other. or the victory points, which is the penalty for going bust. And that's the whole pressure lock. Do you stop or do you push? And one of the things I really like about this game is that every time you play, the ingredients are going to have a different effect. Yeah, four of the ingredients have different, and there are four variants yeah. for each. So there's a lot of variety that you can use during each game. Yeah, the effects are all basically having to do with how far you're moving your score marker, but it may be things like if you draw one of these tokens, then depending on how many of another token you've already drawn, you may get a bonus, which of course with my luck means that's always the first thing I draw. It's surprisingly deep when you first hear it described it doesn't seem like there's that much going on but i actually quite like it i'm bad at it because anything involving luck or indeed skill the busting mechanic is if you get to seven of the base mushrooms and there's basically some ones and some twos and a four 
And if you draw seven, you're fine. But if you draw the eighth, you have failed. So there's a point where you get to four and it's like, well, there's only one four left in the bag. Actually, it is one, two, and three for the mushroom. But anyway, you're at a point where they're like, well, surely there's only one chip left in the bag that will cause me to go bust. And you draw I can that risk one. another one. <laughs> and of course, you always draw the bad one. No, it's nice to have a bag builder that's got to push your luck. And it feels like a real game. A lot of the push your lucks are really almost throwaways. And this one's addictive as hell. Well, a lot like what we talked about with Deep Sea Adventure and Welcome to the Dungeon. Like, they really are those kind of, like, palate cleansers or we've got eight people in 15 Mm -hmm. minutes. Mm -hmm. This one, like you said, it's definitely got some meat to its bones. One of the things that I would do differently upon playing it again is you can't actually change your bag after the fact. So your early buys are still highly impactful later in the game. Mm -hmm. But you have almost no money, so yeah. 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 It's also interesting because each turn, there's basically a random event card, which will do things like these now are worth double points, or you can't buy any purple things this round, or whatever the rules may be that can do some interesting spins on it. Also, about midway through the game, once you've got a bag that you sort of like the contents of, here are some more tokens that will make you go bust sooner. (laughs) So it's there's an interesting flow to it. I quite like it. My favorite event card was the one that was just, if you're playing this specific strategy, which I was, you win. And you did. And you did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it worked out real good. But it did have a interesting, if not wholly effective, catch-up mechanism. At the start of any given round, you look at the scoreboard and compare your current score to the leader's score and will get some number of... Free bumps on free, your free move round. Yeah, you'll start farther along the track. It felt like the ketchup mechanism was adequate. You just got so far ahead, it yeah. didn't matter. Yeah, that was a totally. ridiculously lucky turn. It was you bonkers. Had. That turn was hyper lucky for you because I was playing a very similar strategy to you, but none of my pumpkins came up that round. Yeah, at all. Like yeah. just none of yeah. them. And again, this gets to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. That now Mike was at a point where he was far enough ahead that the rest of us just, just had coast. to keep pushing harder oh, yeah. to try and catch up to him, and yeah. none of us did. It would have been helpful if they would have read a couple of books <laughs> instead of just being a quack, right? Just read a book or something and then don't be a quack. Right. So maybe they should have played Fire in the Library. It was released by Weird Giraffe Games in 2019. That's a great name. By Tony Miller and John Prather. And in Fire in the Library, you are librarians and you're trying to save books from a library that is on fire. At the start of the round, minus the first round, you draft the turn order you're going in. And each turn has a number of spaces that are safe from your first fire draw and spaces that aren't safe from your first fire draw. The boards that go more first are less safe than the boards that go later. And the boards that go first get you more points in general than the boards that go later. There's more advantage to going first, but it's safer to go later. So theoretically, you can go further and get more points. And so then on your turn, you pull tokens out of a bag. The bag is originally seated with some fire tokens and with a couple of books of each of the book colors or four book colors. And you put them on this grid that you have in front of you. If it's your first fire and it's on a space that is safe for fire, you can keep going. If you draw a fire and it's not a space that's safe for fire or it's your second fire, all of your books burn and you are out of the round and you get a small benefit for being awful But you don't score any points. At the point where you're like, cool, I'm happy, you score all of your points. The thing that I find super interesting about this game is that as the books burn, they become more valuable because there are now less of them. Yeah, there's four colors and each color has its separate score. And in the beginning, they're 
one or two points per book. But if, say, a lot of the yellow books have burned, then if you manage to find some of the remaining ones, they're worth six, seven, eight points. And the game can end very quickly. For each card, right, there's a stack of cards. And if any of those stacks reaches the bottom card, the game is over. The points that the books are worth are directly proportional to the probability of drawing that. Mm -hmm. So as those books burn, the yellow books, which start out as one of the more common books, are going to become rarer and rarer and rarer, thus becoming more valuable. And that also works as a potential catch-up mechanism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of layers of this, again, choosing what order you want to go in. If you get books out of risky spaces, there are bonus points for bravery that you get, but obviously it's a lot more dangerous. There are a variety of tools and objects that you can get that will help you steal books from other people or get additional books or score a book twice. Fling fire at people. Right. Simple little game, really nicely put together. It's in one of those book-shaped boxes, which is a nice touch. I like this game a lot from a pressure luck standpoint because it is one of the few pressure luck games. There are a couple other in this list that actually feels like a game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As you get to the more recent ones like Grizzled and this game and even Quacks of Quetlinburg to a very similar extent, right? Like they feel a lot more like games that have pressure luck as an element. I do find that I like pressure luck games that do have some kind of game elements around them to kind of buoy them up. Yeah, definitely. Some of the early ones were really sort of more of an activity. Right. And it was less tactical decisions and more like, well, let's see what I get. Yeah. So that covers our main list of pressure luck games. Obviously, there's a lot more out there with those elements inside. And if you think there's one that we've overlooked or should play, if we haven't, please do write in and let us know. There are a variety of other games that we all sort of wanted to at least talk about a little bit that play with these mechanics in interesting ways. Not surprisingly, Frank has one that is old and obscure, but that he really likes. Oh, no, no, no. Prize property is not obscure. That's Milton Bradley, 1974. I made them play it because, you know, you should. (laughs) This game was fantastic. (laughs) See? (laughs) I don't know if I'd go quite that far. Uh, uh... It was a terrible game. (laughs) Also... Fantastic. But a good time was had. Oh, it was a terrible about. but very overproduced for the time game. Oh, I know. Milton Bradley just knocked it out of the park. I mean, it's a simple game. Really, you're building buildings, clearing land and everything. The pressure luck mechanic is basically income every turn. You take a six-sided die. with Six is replaced by a red dot. You roll as many times as you want. Sum it up. That's your income. If you ever roll a red dot, yeah, you're not getting any income. So functionally, within this game, you are playing pig Pig. at the start of every turn. And it's obvious that (laughs) that pig is the inspiration for that. Pile on top of that, the fact that you've got these gorgeous plastic and cardboard buildings you're building up. You start with everything looking like a wasteland, and you clear away the land to reduce, you know, beautiful parkland. Then you get event cards every turn that are just kind of wacky. And most important, and above all, is the gavel. <laughs> the greatest. Which was surprisingly underutilized I in know. this game. So yeah. basically with the gavel, you can take from a card deck, if you want to pay for it, to take out lawsuits. If somebody builds something, you go, nah, I don't think you should build that. You basically just sue them. <laughs> At that point, you go to a town council meeting. People can play pro and con cards. Determine how many red and green marbles go in the the hammer part of this little mallet. Then you shake it, turn it upside down, and one of those marbles falls into the handle and is displayed to give you your verdict. And yeah, it's a judge's gavel. So functionally, it's a little bit of a bag builder step. It is certainly cute. It was really interesting because the event cards, there was an awful lot of ecological concern. Yeah. That, was totally, that was totally a thing. There were whole lines of ecological games in the 70s. No, you can't build there because there's a rare type of turtle breeding in there. You can't put your marina there. Right. And that's one thing that really shocked me. But 
there were an equal number of you just get nothing, screw you. Oh, yeah. And you get double of what you would have gotten. And just the way it worked out, Joe got, I think, 90% of the double profits. And And also 90% of the you get nothing. My last four rounds, when I was one building away, last four rounds, I had enough, I rolled enough money to win the game. And then I drew a card, which is, you don't get any money this round. I'm like, why do I even bother? <laughs> like, my first four rounds were, like, double your profits. My last four rounds were, you get nothing. Good day, sir. And, like, you also had to pay money to get the verdict cards. Yeah, and generally not that quite That did not worth seem it. like yeah. a good value for money. Right. Yeah. Because, basically, you're paying for a 50% chance of getting something that could potentially screw somebody else over or, or help you potentially yeah. help yourself if somebody tries to screw you over but also that is now money that you cannot pay into your properties which is your way of winning the game however from what i understand it's kind of a, a nuclear escalation thing once somebody goes diving into that deck and then more people start diving into that deck and then pretty much it's you sort required. of have to yeah, to defend right. yourself yeah. and some people have played that way and suddenly it evolves into yeah that kind of We're escalation obviously a much friendlier crew <laughs> clearly <laughs> i think we had what three suits the entire game or something yeah So one that I wanted to talk about is one that isn't really a board game, although it uses a board game, and it's one of my favorite sort of one-shot RPGs, which is a game called Dread. It was released in 2005 by The Impossible Dream, designed by Epidiah Ravacol and Nathaniel Barmore. This is a fairly freeform RPG. It's for one-shot horror games. It does a lot of interesting things like character creation. You don't have any stats or anything like that. Character creation is just you answering a series of scenario and character-specific questions. Basically, there's characters one through six for this scenario, and each have a questionnaire. And the questionnaire is going to have things like, what is your name? What do you do for a living? What's your most valuable possession? And then in the end, they get weirdly specific and creepy, like, why didn't you tell anyone what you found in the basement? What didn't you tell the police when they were investigating that murder? Things like that. So you can make your character significantly creepy if you want to. And then you do sort of the standard role-playing stuff. And like in most RPGs, if the judge thinks, yes, you can do that, you can do it, no, there's no way you can do it, you can't do it. If it's a matter of chance, there is a Jenga tower. And the judge may say, all right, to secure that thing, pull once from the tower. And if you pull successfully following standard Jenga rules, you put the thing on top and nothing falls down, then you succeed. If you fail, your character is going to die. Maybe not immediately, and maybe not directly really what you're trying to do, but you have sealed your fate right there. And a lot of it is to amp up the stakes. So, Mm -hmm. you know, toward the end of the game, you're going, okay, the killer grabs your hand, raises a hatchet right over your wrist. Uh, Do you want to resist? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to lose a hand or have to pull from that incredibly shaky jig right, tower and that's the sort of thing. Well, if you make one pull, you can get away before the thing. If you make two pulls, you can get the hatchet from it. And the other thing that gets great is that sometimes you'll have characters going against each other, and then they're just alternating pulls until someone fails. There was a scenario I did once where there were a bunch of rafters going down the Grand Canyon, a whitewater raft, and something horrible started chasing them. And at one point, they were on this little island, and the only thing that resembled a weapon they had was the ore. 
And I had a pair of characters do collectively 18 pulls from the tower wow. grappling over that thing. <laughs> That's impressive. And one of them, of course, finally failed. And basically someone pushed back and they got impaled on the end of the ore. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you get a lot of really great epic moments there. So really, they've just confirmed that it is, in fact, an effective weapon. I mean, yes. <laughs> there's, I think, three or four scenarios in the core book, and there's a bunch of other ones you can find online. It's just super fun if you have a few hours and a Jenga set and want to have fun murdering people. On one of the many, many board game sales that I spent too much money on, I ran across a, uh, a pressure luck game called Dragon Slayer. It's a dice game. Essentially, you have a number of dice. There's basically three sets that represent different dragons. There's a red one, a green one, and a blue one, I think. And you have dice that you're rolling as your guy who's trying to kill a dragon. You roll the dice, and you're trying to form a dragon. You're trying to get one dragon head, the dragon wings, the dragon tail. The more difficult the dragon it is, the, the more of them you have to get. And you have to roll, like, axes and shields to prevent the dragon flame from hurting you and whatever. It's, it's basically you're just trying to get sets of things. And so on your turn, you say, okay, I feel like I can take on a medium dragon. You roll and you keep rolling until you bust, basically. Let's say you complete the dragon. You score those points. What makes this game interesting, the reason I wanted to talk about it, is the other players have a one-use-per-game token where they can say, you're not done, keep going, and force you to keep nice. keep doing it. So you're like, oh man, awesome, I just cleared this, I'm good to go. They're like, nope, here you go, you keep going. That's why I wanted to bring it up. That's that one piece, I was like, oh, that's nice. That, 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 is, is, that is the true. opposite of nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great little filler game. It was like five bucks, I think, when I bought it. I can't find my copy, it's buried somewhere, but uh, I need to dig it out again, because it's a great palate cleanser. Let's just screw around with this silly little Honestly, game. Honestly, I feel like we should just take those tokens and add them to every other game on this list. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. One game I wanted to touch on was Clank, which was published by Renegade Game Studios, designed by Paul Denon released in 2016, and it is a combination pressure luck game and deck builder. So on your turn, you buy a card based on cards you have in your hand, and then you play cards to move around the board and defeat monsters and bypass traps. The goal of the game is to get as deep as possible into the cave and collect an artifact and then successfully escape with that artifact. Sounds very Dungeon Questy. And the timing mechanism for this is a dragon that, depending on how many artifacts have been taken or how many dragon eggs have been taken, you draw a certain number of cubes at the end of your turn and whoever's cube you draw... That's who takes the damage. There's some non-player cubes, which are just like the dragon doesn't do any damage. And then everyone has seeded into the thing a couple of cubes of their color. And as you make noise, you add more cubes. And so the dragon might be your best friend. <laughs> and the great part is not on your turn. You can totally take damage as the dragon is like thrashing around. So it's a cool little game for those of you who haven't played it. I highly recommend it. And if dragons aren't your things, check out Clank in Space. Yeah, you can be in space. No, you're not saying it, right? Clank in Space. I forgot about the pronunciation. Right. The description doesn't make it sound as amazing as it is. It's really addictive. I mean, it's very simple and just compelling to play, like quacks. That's the thing about a lot of these pressure luck games. Human beings have a little bit of a gambling problem. <laughs> yeah. And this really feeds that. <laughs> I'm also looking forward to the Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated Edition, which will be a bunch of fun. So that, that does sound kind of I'm hilarious. Is Rob Davio involved? Uh, <laughs> That's I don't know. I don't know. it's been like six games since we, we mentioned I mean, it's Rob been a whole Davio. episode since <laughs> we mentioned him. <laughs> So again, if there's anything that we have talked about here that you guys want to talk more about, if you have games that you think we've missed or should have discussed, 
By the way, if you guys heard any weird rapid breathing noises in here, it's just because Mike's new dog, Samus, is uh, desperately wanting to be on the podcast. She really does. She's She's got a long career ahead of her. Got strong opinions about Push Your Luck games, too. She really uh, does. So she has got strong opinions on board games, especially <laughs> hiding them. We've got our room that is just decked out in board games, and we can no longer put the boxes down onto the floor because she will come along, pick them up, and just take them. Yeah, she really liked Welcome To. Yeah. <laughs> we finished that game and she just, I'm going to put this over here now. She's just trying to help. As this comes out, most or all of us are going to probably be at Dragon Con, which is a lovely event in Atlanta worth a lot of cosplay and fandom stuff and some gaming. I mean, it's not really a gaming focused con, but that's most of what we do anyway while we're there because we're that kind of nerd. So until next time, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll be talking at you again next month. Keep sending those cards and letters. <laughs> Keep circulating the tapes. <laughs> we hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast, and thank you for listening. There's a lot of quizzical staring going on at this point.